Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Omicron surge that we were about to face was threatening many other places of our healthcare okay, sector. I, I appreciate the background, but I just want to know straightforward. If someone is exposed to or has COVID-19 and they're vaccinated, what do they do? If they are uh, exposed to COVID-19 and they are completely boosted, they they do not need to stay home, um, but they should get a test at day five. If they have COVID, our uh, guidance is not, does not distinguish between your vaccination status. And our science has demonstrated that you're maximally infectious two days before and two to three days after. So by five days after your symptoms, if you're feeling better, if your fever is better, if your cough and sore throat are better, then on day six, you can go out, but you have to wear a mask. You have- she's saying this while she's double masked. Speaking to the Senate Health Committee, Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. On Facebook, Tony Katz Radio, find everything at TonyKatz.com. That's Dr. Rachel Walensky, head of the CDC, double-masked, speaking to the Senate. Once again, trying to explain what the bloody hell the CDC rules are when no one can understand them. No one understands what it is the CDC is saying. No one understands what they're doing. No one understands what they're all about. It is just a great big hot mess. A mess. What's so interesting is that this was Patty Murray, senator from Washington State, asking the question. And yet she is out there making the claim that Republicans are the ones spreading misinformation. When, of course, that's not true, is it? These problems, we have to be focused on solutions. You can't just say our schools must stay open if you don't vote to provide additional resources schools need to do so. You can't just say the latest health guidance is confusing and not call out the blatant misinformation that has come from so many members of the Republican Party. We're not. Can we stop? Can we stop? It's not the Republican Party that said 100,000 children have COVID and are on ventilators. That was Sonia Sotomayor, a progressive, a leftist, a bad jurist. And you think that the answer is voting for more money to do what? Increase ventilation systems? Open a freaking window. Don't buy the kids masks. Buy them coats. Every kid gets a coat. And maybe a scarf. Open up windows. Ventilation is what works against COVID. That's why you don't have these massive super spreader events in open air. Doesn't exist. Now, what's really interesting is that as this this conversation raged today on Capitol Hill, Americans aren't as interested in COVID anymore. They're not. They're not interested in COVID anymore. What they're interested in is inflation. That's what they're interested in. The numbers are showing it. When you take a look at what it is, uh, where, where people are, are talking about, they're talking about the inflation. They're talking about what it costs them to live, to survive. That's what they're talking about. COVID has dropped from the list because what they have come to accept 
is that they have to live with COVID. They understand this. They have to live with COVID. And so that's what what they're doing. That's what they're working on. That's what people have come to accept. They don't want to live in fear. They don't want to live in afraid. And they sure, sure as bloody hell don't want the garbage nonsense politics coming from Senator Murray lying about the situation. We're not going to get out of this crisis by treating each challenge as a political opportunity. We're going to get through it by being honest about what we are facing and clear about what we are going to do about it. And as we continue working to get through this pandemic, it's important we also look at what we can do to prevent future health crises. That is exactly why Senator Burr and I have been working in a bipartisan way over the last several months on legislation to learn from and improve on our pandemic response, like strengthening our supply chain for medical products. You mean you haven't done that already? Ah, it's frustrating. Hear these people say we can't get political about this. That's all you've been. Every last thing has been political, political, political. This is the part that disgusts us. Senator Richard Burr of North Carolina asking the questions. Was that part of the communications plan to start with and they diverted or was that something you just chose to inject? Thank you for that question, Senator Burr. In discussions about the real gray zone, uh, which Dr. Walensky described about after the five days where you have a considerable diminution in the likelihood of being transmitting, we had been in discussions about what the role of antigen testing would be. And as a matter of fact, when Dr. Walensky... I can't listen anymore to this insanity. Here, let us explain why we still have jobs. Okay, did that explanation work? No, because we'll do another one. And we'll just keep this going and keep this going. And we will milk as much money out of the federal government as we possibly can. Let's talk about what we're really talking about here. What Americans are really focused on. Jim Garrity doing the yeoman's work. The story over there at nationalreview.com. And if you catch my uh, morning rumble show... Uh, you, you you saw me talking about this. Uh, you can go to rumble.com, search for Tony Katz. I do a, a show there uh, every day in like the, the, the 10 o'clock Eastern hour. Uh, I, I do a video series there presented by Americans for Prosperity. And the headline goes, Empty Shelves Disprove Biden's Supply Chain Boasts. Now understand that Garrity doesn't agree with me on everything politically. Maybe doesn't agree with me on everything Trump or, 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 or a whole host of subjects. But if you want to meet a guy who is searching for all of it, Jim Garrity is it. And I think that he is underutilized and underrespected as a researcher. Note what I'm saying. It's not that you agree with him on everything. It's that it is obvious that he is one of the guys who puts real effort into his stories and backs it up in a way that forces you to work extra hard to disprove him. I respect that in a guy. He discusses how people like the chief of staff, Ron Klain, has called the supply chain crisis, quote, an overhyped narrative. 
how the Biden administration said the much-predicted crisis didn't occur. Packages are moving. Gifts are being delivered. Shelves are not empty. As we said, this is going to be all about, every last bit of it is going to be about Christmas. And none of it, absolutely none of it, is going to be about how you and I survive. I mean, that's, that's the way it is. They're not worried about Midwest Main Street at all and in any way. They don't care. They don't care about Midwest Main Street at all or in any way. Well, Jim Garrity does the work. Starts going through what's going on on the shelves. Quoting uh, an ABC affiliate in Richmond, Virginia. Quoting a CBS affiliate in Atlanta, Georgia. Quoting a CBS affiliate in Portland, Oregon. Quoting a CBS affiliate in Knoxville, Tennessee. Quoting uh, news outlets out of Daytona Beach, Florida. KHOU in Houston. Down there in Dallas. The Wall Street Journal. Stories out of uh, manufacturing automatic automotive manufacturing and automotive works in Springfield, Missouri, Orange, Massachusetts, Hardin County, Texas. The massive shortages all the way around that are being experienced. This is why I believe that Associated Press poll that shows that people are focused on inflation and not focused on COVID because this is where real people's lives are. This is where they're at, baby! This is what they're focused on. This is what matters. The supply chains are an issue. And that the, the, the stock market may do well. There's a big difference between Wall Street and Midwest Main Street. There is a massive difference between the two things. And Midwest Main Street is suffering. Midwest Main Street is suffering. You don't have the product to be able to put on your shelves to sell in your business. That is the real story. That's the real issue. You affording milk and bread and meat and cheese and eggs for your family, that's the real story. And the shelves aren't there with you. The shelves are not full. And now that Christmas is over and that news cycle is over, you're not going to see any attention put to it. There was a, a reporting out of the Daily Mail that showed because of Omicron, 5 million people may not be at work next week. Awaiting tests, taking tests, they're actually sick. They're people. Some people are there actually, you know, with those flu-like symptoms. They're not going to die, they just have flu-like symptoms. Well, okay, they're not going to be at work. Well, at least the workplace can still be open and there aren't sh- or four shutdowns. But that is going to have an effect on all the things. That's what people are talking about. That's what people are focused on. The effect on their lives, not the fear-mongering of COVID. When you have a CDC and the so-called health officials who can't figure out how to explain to you what their guidelines are. You need Senate hearings to figure it out and you still don't know. More coming up. I'm Tony Katz. The state of the state is tonight. Governor Eric Holcomb. He is given the state of the state. 
for the state of Indiana, and and it's gonna be a it's gonna be a barn burner. A barn burner. No, it's it's not. It's gonna be boring as hell. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Uh, great uh, to be with you. I'm telling you, it's going to be the same old, same old. We've got billions of dollars in revenue. I think it's $5 billion in the surplus. We are holding the line on taxes. We're attracting businesses. Everybody wants to be part of the Indiana story. The state of Indiana is strong. Okay. I mean, he does have a lot he can, he can, he can play on right there. He does have a lot that he can work on right there. The problem is, it's not a totality of his record. Because on the social issues, he is silent, and this is a social issues general assembly. Is what it is, what it is, what it is, can't be denied, and he's totally silent. Oh, well, that's just noise, don't you know? It's just a bunch of noise. I don't pay attention to the noise. I'm working on the issues. Parents are being told they shouldn't have a say in their kids' education or being called domestic terrorists. Maybe that's something you might want to talk about. Now, there are things going on in the General Assembly that I'm, I'm very interested in. Let's start about the reducing of the individual income tax rate from 3.23% to 3%. As the Indianapolis Business Journal puts it, Emily Ketterer, it would... Uh, Cost the state $87 million in revenue in 2023, $366 million by 2025. I hate that line. I despise that line. It's going to cost the state. No, 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 no. It's not their money. It's not their money. It's not going to cost the state. It's not their money. I think that you have to bring the state income tax rate to zero. I think if you're going to be competitive, you have to do it. Now, where the governor might disagree is he, he might say, that, well, um, you know, we're already competitive. Look at all the businesses we're bringing in. Look at all the growth that we're having. You see, that's competitive. Is it competitive because you're doing better than a state like Illinois? Because, well, Illinois is hot garbage. I, I, should, I should rephrase. J.B. Pritzker and Cook County are hot garbage. No, no, that's not right. J.B. Pritzker, the governor, and the leadership in Cook County are garbage. Much better. Much better. See, I, figure, I figured it out. I, I, I got it together, Sam. It took me a while, but boop, I brought, her, I brought that baby home. You always manage to find a way. Downstate, those are good people. We should actually annex it and call it Indiana West. West Indiana. Hell, West Hoosierville. Whatever it takes. I think we'd be very happy with Peoria, personally. They don't want to live in that hellscape. They don't want any part of it. But if we're comparing ourselves to Illinois, it's an unfair comparison. you got to compare yourself to Tennessee. Tennessee, Tennessee, Tennessee. I love that song. Now, where are you? What's your growth in comparison to Nashville and to Memphis and to Knoxville and to Chattanooga? Notice I named four cities. Indianapolis, 
Fort Wayne, you go silence after that. And I am not a, I, I don't want that. I have long been a believer that the better the cities do uh, across the state, the better Indianapolis will do, the better we all are. I want a thriving, massive Evansville and Terre Haute. Oh, yes, I do. And I want a huge, that Gary is, is, is not like this, this jewel. It's one of the worst things out there. Gary has got, as I see it, nothing but everything going for him. They have got location and opportunity galore. They haven't figured it out yet. Something a governor should be really focused on, as I see it. Compare yourself to Tennessee. Compare yourself to the growth of Florida. If more and more people are moving to Florida, and that's where the workforce is, isn't that where businesses are going to go? That's something to consider. That's something to focus on. So I favor the reduction of the income tax rate to zero in order to be competitive. But it's not enough. You can't just be competitive with lowering taxes. And this is the mistake that so many on the political right make. It's not enough. You have to be able to offer the people a quality of life that they can't get anywhere else. Yes, you're going to be cold in the winter, but... And you got to be able to answer that question. You got to be able to answer that question with, with, with either a cost of housing or with a taxation or with a here's all the places you're going to be able to enjoy the dollars because of our business friendly uh, environments. Look at all the jobs that we created and look at the kind of entrepreneur you can be. Yep, you're going to be, have to buy a coat, but you're going to be able to afford a coat. As a matter of fact, why not open a shop selling coats? And oh, look. Here's all the sporting events that we do. And then, oh, look, here's all the arts events that we have. And then, oh, look, here's all the things that we are creating that nobody else has. You not only have to allow people to keep their money, you have to give them a place to spend their money. And you also have to give them airports that have enough nonstops out of state so they can go on vacation and be like, oh, that was great. Oh, but I'm glad to be going back home. And look how easy it is. So it's more than just saying we're strong compared to our neighbors. Compared to our neighbors? Our neighbors suck. Are we strong compared to where we need to be to be able to compete with Texas and Florida and Tennessee? That's the question. If we're not looking at that as the bar, we ain't looking. We are not even in the game. Meanwhile... More on this conversation about what universities are not doing to teach our kids and using Omicron as an excuse. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. So we've seen, of course, how the reactions to COVID are changing, and they're changing because people are much more focused on the economy than they are on COVID. COVID's something that they have to live with. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you on Facebook, Tony Katz Radio. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. But when we take a look at how some people have reacted to Omicron, they utilize this as a justification for opportunity. 
We've seen uh, it's just now resolved, and we'll see if it stays resolved. The Chicago Teachers Unions, they shut down schools for, what, four or five days? It was too frightening to teach with Omicron. When Omicron presents itself with flu-like symptoms and isn't leading to mass cases of death, and we have seen that the vaccine that we have for SARS-CoV-2 doesn't necessarily work on Omicron. I know this because Pfizer's now said they're going to have an Omicron vaccine, which nobody's going to take. But we also have seen from the university system, people take advantage, schools take advantage of, oh, oh, there's another variant. Okay, no kids are on campus. Okay, we're virtual. Okay, we're going to do this. Okay, we have an opportunity to ask more questions and be more invasive. Liz Wolf joins us uh, right now. Uh, she writes over at The Federalist and at Reason.com, where she is an associate editor, talks very often and covers uh, free speech, specifically uh, things happening in China and pandemic policy. The article from last week, Colleges Use Omicron as Justification for Shutdowns and Surveillance. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that, that frightens you and usually does indeed come out of China. We have seen the teachers, Liz, utilize Omicron and utilize COVID as an opportunity to get paid for doing less work. I think that's the way people see it in a, with a very broad brush talk to me about what you're seeing about justification for not just shutdowns but the very idea of surveillance oh absolutely i mean i've been interviewing college students all week and it's been really astonishing all the reports of colleges who are coming back from winter break and basically switching to remote only learning for the next two weeks three weeks four weeks some of whom say, you know, it might be indefinite. It might go on for a much longer time, depending on how case counts uh, sort of react. The thing that I'm really concerned by is, A, college students are paying customers. College is incredibly expensive, and they're not getting their money's worth. These are glorified online seminars, right? The other thing I'm really concerned by is, to what degree are we really distorted in our assessments of risk? This is, you know, an 18 to 22-year-old population who, you know, many of them are vaccinated. A lot of these campuses, I'm very opposed to it, but a lot of these campuses have vaccine mandates in place. So we're talking about campuses that are 99% vaccinated. In terms of preventing severe illness and death, these kids are good, right? But for whatever reason, colleges have, have you know, seen it fit to curtail their rights, to curtail their learning, to, you know, quarantine them in their rooms whenever they get exposed, and then to also foist uh, terrible testing regimes on them that really require them to, in some cases, if they're fully vaccinated, report daily for another COVID test every single day, a daily COVID test. We are basically wasting resources, devoting them to 19-year-olds who are fully vaccinated. Hold when on really a second, what we Liz. could do as a society is focus on testing for old elderly people and making Liz. sure that they're sort of more isolated. Well, Liz, take a step back, back with up. me for a second. Hold on. Liz Wolf from Reason. I need you to say it again. I, I rarely interrupt. I need to hear that again. We have universities in the United States of America that are requiring vaccinated kids to test daily? Absolutely. I interviewed a, a former student at Bates College in Maine. He just graduated a few months ago. This was the requirement in place for them. So I've contacted all of these universities and asked, Give me a breakdown, not just of the case counts, but of the severity of cases. You know, we need to justify this policy and nobody will respond.
Well, not responding seems to be uh, the way the way you keep your your, your job. One of the reasons you <laughs> came on to, to my radar and this conversation came onto my radar is that you asked a question on Twitter: Why haven't colleges like Cornell and Yale followed Life at Purdue's lead and published not just raw case counts but information about severity of illness? Life at Purdue is Purdue University, West Lafayette, right down the road or right up the road from me here in Indianapolis, uh, Indiana, and that. University, the president there, Mitch Daniels. I'm a fellow of the Mitch Daniels Leadership Foundation, and I found that very, very interesting, and some people shared it with me, and that's how we ended up talking. What is Purdue doing differently, and what would you like to see other universities glean from that? Purdue has done everything differently. First of all, they never instituted a vaccine mandate, and yet students voluntarily, 88% of the student body is vaccinated fully. So I think that's a really telling thing, that people would have opted into this regardless of mandates. Uh, Second of all, they're publishing really, really good data that breaks down how severe these cases are. And they're actually finding that a lot of these cases are mild to moderate. There, I think, is less than 1% of cases that they've tracked on their campus that actually result in, in severe illness or hospitalization. It's really astonishing. And I think it just really bolsters the idea that this does not, this virus, you know, however bad it may be, does not affect this age group to the degree that other colleges are claiming. I think if other colleges were forced to collect that type of data or voluntarily did so, they would realize that their policies are, are essentially them overreacting to what is akin to a cold or a flu for this age group. So does it, is, doesn't the argument come from the students themselves then? Talking to Liz Wolf, associate editor at Reason.com, the students themselves saying, hey, you're not utilizing this information properly. We want the answer to these questions. Aren't the students on these campuses curious about whether or not the, the university is gathering data that, that makes sense? Aren't, aren't they by nature people, regardless of their political party, worried about privacy issues? You would think, right? I think we would all hope, but that's really not the thing we're seeing on the ground. I think this is a sort of a natural outgrowth of the degree to which, you know, younger people have been coddled. And there's a lot of safetyism that we've sort of seen uh, attempting to shield them from, from consequences and from discomfort. And I think a lot of young people are legitimately, you know, true believers, uh, you know, that this is such a terrible, horrible virus that they're, it's really distorting their assessment of risk. And I, I think it's very sad because we are basically creating an entire generation of, of, you know, young adults who are going to be bad at assessing risk and who are going to be fearful and obedient. Uh, and I just really think that this is such an important formative time. They're really being deprived of something important. Let's get into how this affects universities going forward. If, you know, I, I do question whether or not parents uh, reacted uh, with, with, without enough forethought when saying absolutely get vaccinated and get back uh, to school and then you saw that kids who got vaccinated and they all enrolled uh they said okay now we're going to go virtual you know and and and, and did p- pulled that fast one on a lot of students do universities worry that this is going to affect them uh going down the line and maybe the amount of people who show up to a campus gets reduced because if everything's going to be virtual anyway i might as well be with purdue global or wgu or 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 university of phoenix or something like that in my mind that would be the best possible outcome i actually do think there is a legitimate silver lining here which is that for a lot of students, uh, trade school, vocational training, 
uh, or opting out of college or taking some time to get some hard skills in the workforce and then making their decision. For a lot of students, that would be preferable to the current sort of system where we have high school guidance counselors who are coaching kids to take on obscene amounts of debt. Uh, And oftentimes, kids are going into schools without a sense of what they want to major in or how that translates into making money later on. I think if this can cause a little bit of a societal realignment, if this can be a sort of accelerationist uh, thing that basically forces people to justify their decisions a little bit better and, and forces them to think a little bit more carefully about the debt they're taking on, to me, that would be a really good thing. It Let's sucks take that a it moment has to be this way, but I do think there is a silver lining. Uh, I I hope you're right, I, and and I, I'm a I'm a proponent of all of those uh, things. But I wanted to just take a moment to go over the inform the information, the data you got out of Purdue University, the Purdue COVID data, which you have posted here in the article at Reason.com. The severity of all cases, employees and students, and then all cases. I'll do the all here, if if you don't mind. Twenty one percent of the cases were mild. 54% were very mild, and 25% were asymptomatic. So when you take a look at those numbers, the amount of moderate, significant, and severe disease, severe symptoms regarding COVID is less than 3% of the totality of the Purdue students and employees. Is it your take that that matches up with other universities, considering this is a northern university and colder climate, et cetera, et cetera, and it would consider to be, you know, worse for respiratory illness. Uh, and if this is the case, how is this not the national story to get colleges to give up the game and give up the ghost on living in fear and trying to scare students? I mean, I, I totally agree. I think you can probably extrapolate these statistics. I think it is somewhat likely that this is sort of a representative trend. And the thing that's really frustrating me is, like, I am a reporter. I keep contacting these, these other universities, you know, Cornell and Yale, and asking them to give me some of this information, to give me this breakdown the way that Purdue, you know, has. And, it, it, you know, I'm happy to reevaluate my thesis if I am, in fact, wrong. If they have collected this data and, you know, maybe these really, really strict policies are justified because they've had such severe cases on their campuses. That very well could be the case, and I'm happy to evaluate that honestly, uh, you know, and with integrity. But I doubt that that's the case, and I would really like to see the data. I think the reason why they haven't provided it is because they, they understand that it doesn't really provide a good justification for the extremely restrictive measures they're subjecting their students to. Liz Wolf, uh, associate editor at Reason.com. Colleges use Omicron as justification for shutdowns and surveillance. That's at Reason.com. You should be sure to check that out. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More coming up. I'm Tony Katz. I'm telling you right now, all anybody is going to talk about is the back and forth between Fauci and Rand Paul. Fauci, it's, 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 I don't even think it's a question, accusing Rand Paul of trying to get him murdered. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. People are calling me. They're leaving obscene messages, threatening messages for me and my children. Nobody approves of that. 
And then somebody was driving across the country. They got pulled over and they said they were coming to kill Dr. Fauci. And then, oh, look, here's Rand Paul's website where it says fire Fauci. And there's a place where he's raising money. You're accusing a senator of arranging a hit on you? Fauci should get fired. There's nothing wrong with saying fire a public official. As a matter of fact, I consider that the most important part about being a citizen. Disgusting, immoral, obscene. If you ever wanted to know whether or not Anthony Fauci is a low-rent weasel, well, you don't have to ask anymore. Low-rent weasel weasel of course you should get fired these people are terrible at what they do they're incompetent and incapable and we're not better off for there's no joy in saying it there's only fact in saying it that's the problem it's not like i'm i'm getting a good one on the guy it, it, it's it's not like I, I i win something by saying so He's bad at what he does. He's not trusted. No one has faith in him. And rightfully so. Because he's awful. He's just a bad dude. But it's going to be the whole story. It's going to be the whole story. There's nothing else... That even comes close. This is going to be it. And that whole line of, 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 do I have it right here? Maybe I've got it right here. Discussion when I brought together a group of people to look at every possibility with an open mind. So not only are you distorting it, you are completely turning it around. As most of the scientists that came to you privately, did they come to you privately and say, no way, this came from the lab? Or was their initial impression, Dr. Gary and others that were involved, was their initial impression actually that it looked very suspicious for a virus that came from a lab? Senator, we are here at a committee to look at a, a virus now that has killed almost 900,000 people. And the yeah, per- but we know it hasn't killed 900,000 people because we know that those with comorbidities make up 75%. 75%. We know this. So no, it's just the virus alone hasn't killed people. It matters. It matters greatly. Attack your can, colleagues uh, and in a politically reprehensible way attack their reputations. Okay, you won't we, defend it. No, you won't well, argue it. I'm You'll just sorry, simply turn around the attack. Continue this hearing. Yeah. We have a number of questions. Yeah, it got it got rough and rough and tumble. But this was the this was the part I wanted to share. And where he was going, and he was going to Washington D.C. to kill Dr. Fauci, and they found in his car an AR-15, and multiple magazines of ammunition because he thinks that maybe I'm killing people. So I ask myself, why would Senator want to do this? So go to Rand Paul website and you see fire Dr. Fauci with a little box that says contribute here. You can do $5, $10, $20, $100. So you are making a catastrophic epidemic 
for your political gain. So the you only have thing politically that, the only attacked thing your can, colleagues uh, and in a politically reprehensible the way. Only thing that, I, that was Fauci accusing Rand Paul of trying to send somebody to kill him. I mean, I, 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 I'll grab even more of the audio. Just, I grabbed it from the wrong spot. I apologize. You think that, that Rand Paul's the one politicizing this thing? That's nuts. That is radical. To say that out loud is just as ridiculous as the, as the day is long. But that has never stopped Democrat Chris Murphy from Connecticut. I'm being asked to make sure that we, everybody has their time, so thank you. Thank you very much for allowing me, Madam Chair. Uh, we will move to Senator Murphy. Thank you, Madam Chair. Dr. Fauci, thank you. Thank you, first of all, for what you do. You shouldn't have to put your life at risk. You shouldn't have to put your family's life at risk to simply stand up and do your job to try to protect my constituents from a pandemic disease. But he hasn't done his job, and we're allowed to say so. Nobody should be threatening him. No one should be trying to kill him. You're not going to get a disagreement, but I'm not going to thank him for doing a crap-ass job. No one should. But thank goodness this isn't political, huh? Meanwhile, this isn't the thing people are talking about. They're talking about what's happening in their lives. But I had to share with you what was going on. Just, It's just nuts. Facebook, Tony Katz Radio. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. Tomorrow, everyone, take care.